Ali. Ali. Nacha. Nacha. And also now. Vaya. Unlimited time. Prabhavama. Are competent. Dande. In punishing. Yamaraja speaking to the Yamadutas. My dear servants, please do not approach such devotees, for they have fully surrendered to the lotus feet of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. They are equal to everyone, and their narrations are sung by the demigods and the inhabitants of Siddhaloka. Please do not even go near them. They are always protected by the club of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And therefore, Lord Brahma and I, and even the time factor, are not competent to chastise them. Purport. In effect, Yamaraja warned his servants, My dear servants, despite what you may have done previously to disturb the devotees, henceforward you should stop. The actions of devotees who have surrendered unto the lotus feet of the Lord and who constantly chant the holy name of the Lord are praised by the demigods and the residents of Siddha Loka. Those devotees are so respectable and exalted that Lord Vishnu firstly protects them with the club in his hand. Therefore, regardless of what you have done this time, henceforward, you should not approach such devotees. Otherwise, you will be killed by the club of Lord Vishnu. This is my warning. Lord Vishnu has a club and a chakra to punish non-devotees. Do not risk punishment by attempting to disturb the devotees. Not to speak of you, if even Lord Brahma or I were to punish them, Lord Vishnu would punish us. Therefore, do not disturb the devotees any further. Om Ajnana Timurandasya Yananjana Shalakaya Chakshu Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurve Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhara Shivasadi Gauravakta Vrinda Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare In this verse, Yamaraja, who is one of the twelve Mahajanas, authorities on devotional service, is laying out the law so that his servitors, the Yamadutas, can understand. His servitors, the Yamadutas, need to know who is under their jurisdiction and who is not. And Yamaraj is entitled to make this very clear in spite of the bewilderment shown by his servitors who, as we discussed last week, were angry, depressed, and even contemplating suicide because they had been so thoroughly impeded, so thoroughly blocked. 
You may know from your career in material existence how when you feel someone has thwarted you, blocked you, get very angry. How dare someone interfere with my plans? How dare someone not submit to my vision? So don't treat the Yamadunas as such unusual persons. They do look very unusual. <laughs> and as we discussed last week, their unusually frightening looks are meant literally to scare you to death as they drag the sinful person out of the body and take that person to the court of the Amaras. But although they look so extraordinarily fierce, sometimes our book distributors who meet people in the public report it's happened quite a few times that I know of during my nearly 50 years of trying to render devotional service. People are shown a book like the sixth canto and they look at the picture of the Yamadunas and oh, I saw them. I saw them. I was in a hospital and I was dying, they told me. And I saw them. Of course, what is normal and what is not normal? We consider what is normal to be what can be verified by our senses. But our senses, as you know, are so limited and so distorted and imperfect. Our basic situation in the material existence is one of living in darkness. That's why we say, Om Magana Chimarantasya. I was born in darkness. I wonder how much you can appreciate that point. Not only was I born in darkness of ignorance, but my eyes were forced shut. Darkness surrounds you. Yes, that's the first factor. And the second factor is, within that darkness, your eyes are slammed shut. This is our situation. Yet, artificially, we think we're seeing light everywhere. <laughs> we think we're dealing with real knowledge of mundane existence. We think that our goals are quite clarified, our goals are quite clear, and supported by the people in general. What are our goals? Materially speaking, our goals are how to be comfortable and secure in a most uncomfortable and insecure domain. Our goals are to achieve some kind of temporary fulfillment and gratification. We want in our life to find some meaning, some purpose, and some reciprocal, satisfying relationships. So we're struggling like children on a carousel. The carousel is going round and round, and it's only for a short time that you can stay on the carousel. But during that short time as the carousel goes around, 
We're trying for meaning. We're trying for purpose, for fulfillment. And then the carousel stops and you have to get down. You haven't been on the carousel? No? None of you? Merry-go-round? Oh, you call it merry-go-round. Okay, now everyone says yes, yes. Was it fun? Sort of. You rode on a horse? Yes, you rode on a horse? The horse was going up and down, too? Yes, these are the advanced merry-go-rounds. Not only does it spin round and round, but you get on the horse and the horse moves up and down. And then what? After how long? You can't stay on forever. The, the merry-go-round, the carousel stops. You have to get down. Unless you pay again. Do you have parents who said, okay, you can go again? So we're looking for such temporary fulfillment. Forgetting the goal of life is satisfying the Supreme Personality of God. Prahlad Maharaj talks about our situation to the point. We give so much value, so much credit to what is external. We give so much value, for example, to the outside of the coconut, the, the brown husk, and we forget all about the inside. And we're gnawing, we're chewing on the outside of the coconut, trying for fulfillment, trying for satisfaction. And we're trying very vigorously and expertly. But no matter how expert we are in chewing on the outside of the coconut, the husk, we miss the point. So this is our message to the world. Beyond this politics or that politics, we're pointing out, you've all missed the point. You're hoping for fulfillment in a most difficult arena. Can the Yamadutas be deterred just by nice family, neighborhood, national arrangements? Oh, you have such a nice family, the Yamadutas will say, we won't touch you. <laughs> oh, you're from a good neighborhood, and you even have property investments. <laughs> we won't touch you. <laughs> will that be anything? You're from a nice nation. The lucky country. <laughs> and you're from Bharat too. <laughs> we won't touch you. <laughs> no. Yamaraj is giving clear instructions to the Yamadudas about who to approach and who not to approach. He's clearing up any confusion they have. So he says, don't you dare approach another devotee. 
Now you might say, isn't that stretching it to call a jamil a devotee? But what you're seeing, as we explained last week in the history of a jamil, is the inconceivable potency of chanting Hare Krishna. That even someone like a jamil, whose sinful activities, I hope and I pray, none of us will ever imitate. Because he chanted the holy name of Narayan at the time of death, he's considered a devotee. So Yamaraj is saying, you made a mistake, you Yamadutas. You approached Ajamya. Don't do anything like that again. You'll be excused this time. But be now be forewarned the next time you risk the direct wrath of the Supreme Personality of God. And he says, such devotees are always protected by the club of the Supreme Personality of God. Lord Narayan has four arms. In two arms he's holding the club and the disc, the chakra. And in the other two arms he's holding a lotus flower and a kancha. So he's showing you, Lord Narayan is showing you he has something for everyone. If you are a miscreant, if you are a demoniac person, what is there Narayan has for you? The disc, the chakra, to sever your head, and the club, to hammer on your head. <laughs> so you want to be an atheist? So these two arms of Narayan are for you. And you want to be a devotee? What's in the other two arms? He's holding a lotus flower, signifying benediction, auspiciousness, and the conchal, which blows a sound of auspiciousness. So he's showing victory for the devotees and utter defeat for the non-devotees. So Yamaraj is saying, you can approach those who are totally averse to the honey at the lotus feet of the Lord. You can approach them. Approach those who never recite the name of the Supreme Personality God. Now, as Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur points out, someone might say, but suppose someone has some tongue difficulty. Maybe they can't talk. So then are they automatically condemned by, to meet the Yamadutas? No. If your tongue is problematic, then at least in your mind, think about the Supreme Personality of God. You say, well, what if someone's mind is deranged? All right. Then just bow down to the Supreme Personality of God. And even if you do this just once, it is noted and you'll be protected from the other duties. So these are the instructions that Yamaraj is giving to his henchmen, his assistants, his workers. He's giving them 
some on-the-job training amidst this history of a job meal, which was a real crisis, a real historical event. He's speaking very strongly. Please appreciate it. He says, even Lord Brahma, even I, and even the time factor cannot chastise those who have chanted Hare Krishna. So again, we should be thinking, what is the destination of someone who diligently chants Hare Krishna throughout their life? Just see what happened to a Ajabhya who haphazardly chanted at the time of death. Jurisdiction is very important. Yamaraj is explaining the territory to his assistants. These kind of persons are under your jurisdiction. You can approach them. These are not. It's very important. At our work and at our school, we're accustomed to demarcations, divisions, categorizations. But we think when it comes to the universe, it's free to, it's an open range, it's free to do whatever you like. You make your own meaning, you make your own categories, you make your own distinctions. But Yamaraja is saying, no, everything is categorized. Everything is demarcated. Lines are drawn. Categories are made. Which box do you fit in? So the conditioned soul doesn't like this. The conditioned soul likes to think that at my workplace, I will conform to administrative protocols, demarcations, categorizations. At my place of education, I'll do that. But when it comes to my own private life, Everything is up to me. We don't see how we are so bound up. As soon as you perform karma, you're dealing with karma bandana, the chains, the ropes of karma. There's no such thing as freestyle karma. <laughs> as soon as you do any kind of fruitive activity, any kind of karmic activity, there are reactions. And remember, we discussed, maybe some months ago, how the Yamadutas themselves explain that ultimately everyone crosses our path, whether they are good in this lifetime or sinful in this lifetime, the Yamadutas explain that the way the universe is constructed is that sooner or later, you're going to slip up. Maybe not in this lifetime. Maybe in this lifetime, you've simply done 100% pious activities, punya. <laughs> but what about the next lifetime? The laws of nature are so complex and so intricate. And as conditioned souls, we are so subject to being overwhelmed by ignorance. So therefore, the Yama Dutas in previous chapters said, ultimately everyone 
comes under our jurisdiction sooner or later. Sooner or later, we have a date with you. <laughs> if not in this lifetime, the next lifetime. They're seeing things from the cosmological scope. They're seeing things on the scale of not just one lifetime. <laughs> we have been reduced to being so poverty-stricken by ignorance. We're just thinking how to squeeze out from this short lifetime as much as possible. So we imagine so many fulfillments. We imagine so many gratifications. We imagine so many purposes. So many meanings. I should do this. Why? Because I should. I should do this. Why? Because I want to. I should do this. Why? Because it will make me feel better. I should do this because it will gratify me and make my life have meaning. At the house where I stay, I, was, I often watch the little kids play. And I can see them, Kanai and Nandai. They pick up a toy, like a toy airplane or a toy truck, and they just, I'm just watching them. They, they move the toy airplane through the air and, and they're imagining something is really happening. Something significant. Something with great consequence. It's all in their mind. It's just a little toy airplane. But in the mind, that's where it all is going on. Sometimes they make a sound. <laughs> <laughs> so I was watching Nandai going through the whole house practically holding the airplane. A, I think it was a Lego airplane. Yes, Sebamrita, Lego airplane. <laughs> and just in the mind, just imagining so much as he ran through the house holding the airplane. He's flying the airplane. And I looked at his face, and he's really into it. <laughs> the mind is so strong. So I was thinking, what's the difference between that behavior and what an adult does? So little Nanda is playing with the airplane and imagining, this is real, this is big stuff, this is very important. And what's the adult doing? Oh, I have my investment properties, I have my work, I have this, I have that. <laughs> so as you know, there are little boy and girl toys, and then there are man toys and lady toys. <laughs> so all this is going on in the mind. Manovatenosity davatobe. In the mind you imagine this. Material existence is actually lived in the mind. So by studying the children you can learn so much because there's really not much difference between the adults and the kids. The adults construct things in their mind, career success, property success, social, social respect, security, but 
We adults are only here for such a short time. But our minds are so active. So therefore, Prahlad Maharaj says, We've forgotten the goal of life is to satisfy the Supreme Personality God. And only then, by doing that, are you free from this craziness of the mind. As Krishna himself says in Bhagavad Gita, Manasasthan in Riyani, Prakritistan in Karshiti. We're struggling in the oppressive material atmosphere with the senses, including the mind. So the more we see how our mind is victimizing us, the more we understand clearly. And analyze how we think our social arrangements will give us meaningful security. How we overemphasize. Certainly, there should be some security given by family, society, nation. But we have to see that so-called security in context. It is so transitory, it's so flickering. The real security is at Krishna's lotus feet. And that security at Krishna's lotus feet is attained by devotional service, especially chanting Hare Krishna, hearing about Krishna's glory. So we spoke last week about little children, terrified. We spoke about little Kanai, terrified by the exploding of a balloon. Didn't know what to make of it. And but when he runs to mother and sits on her lap, everything is alright. No need to fear. Everything is safe. She rubs his body and hugs him, and he knows I have attained the supreme destination. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the adults know better. Oh, you'll be crying again very soon. When I'm watching the little kids, I can see that. It's just happiness and distress coming so quickly. One minute laughing, next minute crying. <laughs> on and on it goes, day after day after day. Happiness and distress, at least 50 times alternating in the day. <laughs> but what is the difference between them and the adults? Simply the gap of time between the happiness and distress. The little children, one minute happy, five minutes later, ah! Adults, okay, maybe two days happy, and then comes the distress, three days distress, two days happy. Just a matter of time, that's all. The adult life is full of happiness and distress. The child's life is full of happiness and distress. So everyone is playing with their toys, and everyone is dealing with the fluctuations of happiness and distress, whether a child or an adult. So Yamaraj is explaining to the Yamadutas, those who think this kind of existence of fluctuating happiness and distress is all in all, you go for them. 
They're under your jurisdiction. Whereas the devotees who know how to lick the honey at the lotus feet of the Lord, don't you dare go near them. So we need to know the boundaries. And the nature of life in Kali Yuga is that we don't like boundaries. But just by our being in this body, in this world, we're bound up. And we increase the imprisonment, the curtailment. We increase that by executing more karmic activity. So again, as soon as you deal with karma, you're dealing with karma bandhana. The bonds, the ropes. There's no such thing as born free karma. <laughs> There's no such thing as material activity with no stipulations, no constraints, no no reactions. It's all one package. And we need to be educated to see that. As soon as I perform a material activity, there is a reaction, appropriately, of happiness, distress, or the mixture of the two. We have to train ourselves to think like that. That is yoga. That is discipline. The disciplined yogi understands Anytime I execute a material activity, I'm binding myself. I'm subjecting myself to reaction. So here we are, very busy trying to adjust the circumstances in the material world that surround us, that make for our life. But the more we try to adjust, the more reactions we pile up. It's a trap. Even if we are one of those rare persons who knows how to execute punya, pious activity, still there's a reaction. In Chaitanya Charitamrita, in Lord Chaitanya's instructions to Sanatana Goswami, Sanatana Siksha, he explains our plight. He explains a traditional punishment. This went on in medieval Europe and evidently also went on in India. When there was someone who needed to be punished by the government, the person was taken to the river and there's a special chair attached to a pole and the person is lowered into the river, submerged until He's almost drowned, and then the chair yanks up again above the water. In medieval Europe, they call it a dunking stool. You get dunked until you can't take it anymore, then run out of the water. Ah, relief. Only to be dunked again. In the contemporary world, this is called waterboarding. <laughs> Stop. Ah, oh, relief, relief. 
And then the modern day torturers say, okay, now tell all the secrets. Tell us where the terrorists are. We're terrorists too, by the way, but tell us where the terrorists are. <laughs> so this kind of example Mahaprabhu views as the nature of material existence. You're plunged into misery. You can't take it anymore. And then, ah, happy days are here. <laughs> and, and then, boom, down into the water you go, down into the misery. So up and down, up and down, up and down. How many lifetimes are we going to waste like this? Just like you look at the little kids playing. And you ask, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to go to school? When are you going to learn how to do constructive activity? So similarly, Yamaraja is looking at the conditioned souls and saying, when will you grow up? When will you truly advance? And as long as you are immature and acting in ignorance, you're going to meet with my agents, the Yamadutas. Today we're celebrating the appearance day of Lord Varahadi, Keshavadrita Shukara Rupa Jai Jagadisha Hare. Never think that the Supreme Personality Godhead has taken on a material form, whether of a boar, a horse, a tortoise. Why does the Supreme Personality Godhead take on all these different forms? for his own pleasure and for the pleasure of his devotees. And the greatest pleasure of the Supreme Personality Godhead is the pleasure of the devotees. So as he explains in verse 14 of the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Namam karma name karma palesvira no activity that I do in this world contaminates me. And I don't have any need to aspire for the fruits of activities. I don't perform karma in the ordinary sense. So what does Krishna mean when he says, Janma karma If you can understand the divine nature of my so-called birth and my so-called karma. I do activities, Krishna is telling you, but his activities, his karma, is not the material definition of karma. So if you can understand the nature of his appearance in this world, and if you are going to understand the nature of Krishna's appearance in this world, that means you understand he has no material body. And his activities are not material. If you truly understand that, then you are free from the illusory energy. You cannot count the avatars. You cannot count the forms of the Lord. But then you say, what about in the first canto, there is a list of avatars? But that's not the end of it. What's listed by Shukadeva Swami 
are simply the avatars that you should recognize. But you are not supposed to recognize any avatars not stated in the Shastra. Although the avatars are unlimited. This is an important point to understand. Krishna appears in every species of life. Every species. But these other appearances and even the most insignificant species of life are not listed in the Shastra. So therefore, you're not to take into account all the unlimited avatars of the Lord, except to understand there are unlimited avatars. You can't count them all, just like you can't count the waves in the ocean. So Krishna takes on various forms, but these forms are Satchitananda. They're composed of eternity, knowledge, and bliss. Don't think that as the Maya bodies do, that these avatars are the Supreme Brahman taking a temporary material form. No, when Krishna says, yada yada dharmasa, whenever and wherever there's a need, he comes. It doesn't mean that he takes on a body manufactured by the material energy. He doesn't say, okay, time to appear in the material world. I, the Supreme Brahman, take on a body of matter. No. He shows a form that eternally exists. It's already there eternally, but he shows it. He lets you see it. It's a big difference. Just like Varaha. Shukara Rupa. He exists in at least five places. He has his abode in Vaikuntha. He has at least three or four abodes in the material world, including one in the shell, the first shell surrounding the universe. He's there. He's on various planets higher and below the lower planets. When you read about Lord Varaha, Shukarupa, sometimes you get a merged account, like in the Bhagavatam. Maitreya Muni is merging the accounts of two appearances of Lord Varaha. Bhagavatam is all about ecstasy. So you cannot fault my Muni for doing that, for merging two accounts. In one appearance of Varaha, he manifests from the nostril of Lord Brahma. In another appearance of Lord Varaha, he simply appears in the Garbhadaka ocean and then kills Hiranyaksha. Again, you would think, why does the Supreme Personality of Godhead take all these different forms? To give pleasure to his devotees. He really comes 
in any incarnation just to please his devotees who are suffering not so much from being harassed by the demons, but the real suffering of the devotees is we want to see the form of the Supreme Personality Godhead. So that, the Supreme Personality Godhead appears as a boar, does not mean he has some kind of material body of a boar, which is normally considered very lonely. Another example from family life, since almost all of you are dealing with family life. So I was watching once Bhagavad Gita with his children, and he was on his knees, and they were riding on top of him with great delight. <laughs> So he's acting like a horse. Does that mean he is some kind of, that he has the material body of a horse? But why is he doing it? Simply for enjoying the rasa, enjoying the flavor. So similarly, you would think Krishna has taken on a material form as a boar. No. It's all about a spiritual body that enjoys in a certain way, relates to his devotees in a certain way. The more you understand how Krishna simply does everything for pleasure, the more you understand Krishna. And his greatest pleasure is to please the devotees. So whether he shows himself as the form of a boar, whether he shows himself as the form of a tortoise, Gormadev, or Matsya, the fish. All these forms have nothing to do with the material energy. Hariyadeva, the horse incarnation, Hamsa, the swan avatar. The more we understand we're not the body, then we have the preliminary, the preliminary qualification to understand that the Supreme Personality Godhead has no material body. The mistake of the impersonalist, the Maya bodies, is to think, yes, we are not the body, and also, Krishna, when he comes in his various forms, they're not the body, but that is incorrect. Krishna is his body. Varahate is his body. They have no material body. So these are the glories of the Lord and his avatars. How they can appear in this world and not be in the slightest touch contaminated by the material energy. And how they act for the pleasure of their devotees. So the devotees can eternally glorify the leelas, the pastimes of the Supreme Lord. But those with materialistic vision can't understand this. Just like what was the reaction when Hiranyaksha first saw Varahadev? What is this? 
What is this creature carrying the earth upwards from the garbage ocean at the bottom of the universe? What kind of creature is this? Hmm, looks to me like an amphibious beast. A beast that can exist both in the water and on land. <laughs> Very interesting. No worry for me, no one can defeat me. <laughs> so he sized up the situation with his materialistic vision. Just like at the beginning of Bhagavad Gita, Duryodhana sized up the opposition with his material vision. But his material vision did not take into account that even though Krishna was not going to fight on the other side, just by his presence on the other side means that the co-workers were doomed. So Hiranyaksha saw Lord Boar. Not truly though, what he saw was his own, the product of his own distorted mind. What is this material creature? Because all there is are material creatures. And he had a grudge already. This, this Vishnu in a material form, because Vishnu is material. According to demonic mentality, Vishnu is just a powerful member of the devatas, the demigods, who gets bribed by the devatas and then he takes action against the demonic people. 